0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. Cavalry
1: Audio. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, car jackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We are doing a compilation of of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. Enjoy. Yeah, I think you and I both are big believers in mastering the basics is what makes you advanced. 100%. A, lot pe- a lot of people think there's supposed to be some... Ninja tricks out there that we're not we're not teaching them that we know and I'm like nope you just gotta master the basics and I know that you've talked about this uh, Benghazi several times so give the Cliff Notes version for those that this this is our first time to hear about Benghazi what happened in your role you know give us a quick little. That version you've probably said a thousand times. I'm sorry to make you say it again.
2: It's not a problem. And it keeps the memories of Roan and Bub alive as well. Right. I agree. We'll dig into them too. But uh, I was with, like you said, GRS, Global Response Staff. That's the security operatives or agents or whatever the cool guy word you want to use, officers of the Central Intelligence Agency and we were in Libya at that time just doing what we usually do, which is protection, surveillance, counter surveillance, low profile protection, very low vis uh, And then also doing um, uh, you getting the layouts and the atmospherics of the city, which we would pass on daily. Uh, now, now, unbeknownst to us until we really got there, our main objective there was to provide weapons and get weapons and move, move Saddam's weapons around that region. Um, legal or not—that's that's something the that DC will have to explain, or if they have tried to explain or not explain, uh, but. Uh, when we were there that evening, it was uh, an attack on the U.S. consulate. We were at the annex, which is about three-quarters of a mile away from the consulate. It was attacked. Uh, we responded to the attack. There was six of us, tremendous team. We had uh, two Navy SEALs, three Marines, and myself as the this is the Lone Ranger. Man, I was Tonto and the Lone Ranger at the same time. How about that? <laughs> I didn't know. Um, That's pretty cool, actually. But, but um, we responded, and the attack was pulled off by Al Qaeda in the Maghreb AQI. Uh, AQIM and then Ansar al Sharia, which later melded into what we know as ISIS now, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it, it, it was uh, it was just a thirteen hours of, and it wasn't continual. I th- any firefight where you're at it continually, there's it's just like a boxing match. There's punches and there's lulls, and there's punches and there's lulls, yeah. and that's what it was. It was, but we had five distinct separate firefights that night. The last one we were I, we didn't have the ability to counter it. It was with mortars. Um, You know, if we would have got the air support we asked for, I think we wouldn't have got mortared that evening. But the last attack, I think they were more inclined to like, hey, we're not going to try to get anybody, which is what they were initially trying to do is just take somebody trying to get a prisoner, a high value target, which the ambassador Chris Stevens was. And uh, he was huge target for them. when they found out that they were losing too many bodies and they just couldn't get that person, steal that person, use them as propaganda. Primarily the ambassador who they were trying to get, they brought in the big guns, which we couldn't defend and they yeah. dropped eight 81 millimeter mortars on us, which killed Ron and Bub, and severely injured Dave Uben, who was the U S state department security officer and Mark Osgeist, who was the Marine that was with us there. And then, um, then we were able to finally get out of there with the help of, and for those that don't know it, and it never came out in the movie. We didn't put it this way. Um, but it's in Trey Goddard select committee report. Um, that's where I found out about it. I didn't even know these guys, but these guys, the militia that came to came to help us, that I had to throw the little jumbo signed up to, they were Omar Qaddafi's, uh Omar Qaddafi loyalists that that came and rescued us and actually took thought. out the mortar team. I know, isn't it ironic? Isn't it? That's why we were there to overthrow Qaddafi, yet we were saved by Omar Qaddafi. Um <laughs> How much money were they paid? Oh, <laughs> uh, and they, you know, they. Were, I, I I know they were paid a lot, a ton. Oh yeah, and yeah. Then, but they also, you know, they also took out that mortar team for us, which why we didn't keep getting hit. Why, and I, I, I didn't know it that night at the time. All I was like, oh, "Thank God those mortars are stopped because we wouldn't have been able to do anything else. They could have just, they could have just turned our, our compound into dust if they just, if they had wanted to, because they were fire for effect. They were right on target."
3: There was one guy we were going after, and it, it, we rehearsed for about a year on this one guy. <laughs> And that the the TTPs I had developed, you know, this was my baby. So I was very excited to see this uh, tactic, technique, procedure uh, um, in full play. Uh, And ended up that we did this hit broad daylight, twelve thirty in the afternoon. So the key was to hide in broad to hide in broad daylight, basically, you know, because if you if you try to if you're, if you're being sneaky, you're going to look sneaky, Mm -hmm. but if you're just hiding in broad daylight, you know, nobody's, nobody's really aware. And that's what we did with this one. So, you know, uh, track suits, leather jackets, body odor, unshaven, and this kind of shit. And um, (laughs) we were setting up this ambush site with cars rolling by and we were actually posing as people working, you know, it's like street workers chipping ice and stuff like that. Cause when we went up to on the ambush site, guys were doing that. They were actually doing, they were chipping ice and they, they thought we were relief. Well, damn, man, what a stroke of luck that was. So we just pulled them off the side, said, Hey, go down here, smoke these cigarettes. And we just took their tools and started getting, kept chipping ice. Uh, nice. And we're setting up this ambush site and there's a lot going on. There's several moving pieces and parts. Um, so we're, we're, we're uh, blocking traffic a quarter mile down that way, a quarter mile up this way. Meanwhile, our, um, our uh, uh, HVT, we're letting him through, but he doesn't know, you know, what's going on. And um, f- it, this came down to seconds, you know. So, re- imagine planning uh, this thing for a year and it came down to literally like um, a window of plus or minus two seconds, damn. Uh, and then <clears throat> 10 seconds prior to. This guy coming through, a cop car rolls through. Now, we had devices on this bridge, you know, uh, but it was very benign to everyday person. Mm. And I'm peeking through the guardrail. I mean, just a slit of my eyeball. And I have a kalava down over my face. <laughs> and, and all I could see is just just the cars and the drivers going through. All right, car, this is get the last one. All right, last car is coming through now. And it's a cop car. And he slows down. And he's checking out. He, he sees something is wrong. And we're going, oh, my God. This is a contingency we didn't plan for. This is going to scoot everything up.
4: Uh-huh.
3: And he kept driving. And I was like, holy crap. Yeah. But then, um, so the, uh, the the hit went down real fast. It was like a minute and 30 seconds after a year of planning. right? So I'm, I'm talking about a minute and 30 seconds. Last minute, we brought a guy with us an officer who had just been assigned he just came across the hall just been assigned uh to a saber squadron and we were adamantly opposed to him doing this but (laughs) command wanted him to get some you know on the ground time Mm -hmm. in in the leadership mode (laughs) and uh adamantly opposed to it. it good guy nonetheless he did not rehearse with us and he was just spazzing out like crazy the hit was just finishing and he assaults the pin the pin car he assaults the pin the pin vehicle our guys but he doesn't know it's our guys he doesn't know because he (laughs) wasn't part of the planning and he's like smashing he's smashing the window and ar in the face and they're going hey bro um we're one of you so yeah Kurt Bush, welcome to the show.
5: Well, thank you, I, I appreciate that introduction. Um, yeah, I've checked a lot of boxes off, you know, in the NASCAR <laughs> wow. world, but I'm ready to check off these boxes here too. When was the last time you got a ticket? I got a ticket uh, this June and it was in North Carolina. I'm on a rally with a bunch of buddies and I was running in the back. You know, I was just chilling back there. Yeah. And the cop pulls us all over and we're doing 82 and a 70. Mm. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like, this, this is going to be fine. You, you didn't see us three miles back, you know, when we were really gassing it up triple digits and he goes and grabs everybody's license and then comes back to the back car, which is me. And he hands me my license and he says, Hey, I need you to go up the road. Uh, I got too many people here on the side of the road. This is kind of a danger situation for all these people. Uh, I need you to go up ahead. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'm thinking I'm getting out of it. So I go up to the, where he told me to go. It's the next gas station up. And there's another cop that's about a mile before that gas station and the red and blue blip. And now they're behind me. And I'm like, man, I was just told to go to the gas station up ahead. So I pull in, they get out, I get out and the junior police officer in the passenger seat wants a picture <laughs> because it's North Carolina NASCAR guy and they wanted a picture. Yeah. Right. So I take the picture. Everything's cool. And I still like haven't gotten my ticket yet. And, and hours later, everybody trickles in to this gas station like now now i've had like seven bags of fritos seven monsters like what's going on and he hands out a ticket to everybody on the rally everybody got a ticket and i'm like wait a minute i took a picture with these guys three hours ago what's what whoa! whoa, whoa." now i was mad and my buddy's like just grabbed me by the back of my collar just get in the car let's go yeah, And now I got to send it to lawyers and they, they handled it. It was, you know, it was $300 ticket. Somebody has got to show up in court, but I'm like, wait a minute. I had to take a picture. I thought we're out of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That so it goes, fair both, to me. it goes both ways. It can go worse yeah. or it can get better. It just depends.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. For all you law enforcement listening, come on, come on.
5: What's it's just be that? real. Just be real. <laughs> yeah
1: picture equals zero tickets come on um all right so uh we roll into i think the final one here kurt or kyle <laughs> you put your money on yourself
5: sounds like we're done here you know you're talking to the to the faster <laughs> one the better one and the more handsome one yeah uh, no I, I love the the rivalry that we've yeah. always had uh, a lot of people don't know seven years younger than I am. And so we didn't race against each other at all as kids. You know, I was over here, he's over there. And by the time he got to cup, I had already mastered it. And so it took him three or four years to kind of catch up at the cup level. Yeah. And then when he did boom, it was on, Like <laughs> <laughs> like we were, we were like at each other for a while. So it's been good over the years. You know, we've, we've kind of had all the ebbs and flows of who's, who's going to be bigger. Who's going to get more stats. Who got us here. Uh, who had what imagery issue problems, you know, like we've gone through it all together. And yeah, at this point right now, like we both throw an arm around each other and go, dude, we've we've done it all. Let's, let's go through
1: this. It's pretty good. Ritlin is credited for helping mainstream the Epstein didn't kill himself internet meme. At the end of an interview with Jesse Waters on Fox News, Ritlin asked if he could give a PSA. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase here. And uh, you basically, at the end of answering one of the questions, you said, if you see the coverage about combat dogs and you decide you want one of these dogs, buy one fully trained and finished or don't buy one at all. And Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> so, um, now I know you've kind of told me the backstory of that, but, uh, so what, what caused you to kind of throw that out there and who would have, who would have thought it's the most googable thing about you?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, of all things to be remembered by, it's uh, probably not at the top of my list of uh, preference. But uh, you know, the, the the weird thing about it is, is a couple things. One is that um, I I was just fucking with him basically. Is that I had done a number of interviews that week because it was on the heels of the uh, ISIS uh, Baghdadi raid where he, you know, they sent a dog in on him and he clacked himself off before the dog got there and. So everybody wanted to know all about dogs. It was kind of like, uh, you know, post bin Laden raid when they found out a dog was on it and everybody lost their shit over it. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it was at the end of an interview where to, to me it just felt like, uh, Jesse waters was, was kind of scoffing at it. Like, ah, it's a fucking dog. Like he just wasn't, wasn't taking it that serious. At least that's how it felt to me after I'd done like CNN and, and other, other big media outlets that were you know asking really good questions and, Uh, and we're taking it pretty serious it seemed like it was just kind of a joke to him and and it was irritating but on the way there uh sitting in traffic it was it was kind of right at the start where joe rogan had mentioned it before and and there were there were a few memes that that were you know out that were just funny but it wasn't like a huge thing yet um and so literally totally off the cuff like i had planned on doing the psa thing because so many people had reached out saying oh hey i want a puppy." uh, you know, the, the Internet sales of fucking Malinois, you know, skyrocketed, uh, you know, f- and, and that's bad for a number of reasons. But so I wanted to say that to use that that as an opportunity to tell people like, hey, it's a serious breed. Like if you don't have one that's totally finished and trained by a professional and, and they teach you how to handle the dog, you're you're asking for it. I've seen it too many times to, to know better. Mm-hmm. And then just at the end of it, I threw that in there just kind of fucking with them. Uh, this was, was a recorded segment. It was not live. And that's what most people I think uh, didn't realize is, is that hats off to Fox news. They kept it in there. We recorded it on a Friday afternoon uh, and they aired it the the following Saturday night. So it wasn't like a, you know, Oh shit, hit the, hit the mute button. Like they, they kept it in there, you know? So, uh, and, and for whatever reason, like that was just the, the weird right place, the right time, 15 minutes of fame catalyst that, like people that I hadn't talked to in 25 years were like, dude, I just saw you on, you know, some other media outlet that was replaying it or uh, like a a guy that I hadn't talked to in probably 10 years is like, dude, I'm sitting at a a truck stop in North Dakota and the table behind me is playing your video over and over laughing their asses off. Like just like these six grown men truckers, like laughing their ass off, you know, watching this video or whatever. So uh, yeah, I mean, totally unintended consequence thing. It was just a spur of the moment. Yeah. Talking with the guy thinking that it wouldn't even show up. And, uh, and it did. And and here we are now that's, uh, at the top of the list.
1: Yeah. Good job. Forget about all your dog work. Let's just, uh, yeah. Concentrate on Epstein here for (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to. Can you survive this podcast? Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Now we're going to turn it into a a hypothetical crisis scenario for you. So are you ready to uh, see if you can survive this podcast?
6: Ready as I'll ever be. All
1: right. (laughs) Well, we've got a, uh, you know, a lot of these scenarios will kind of sound and start the same, but uh, Jeff is good. Jeff, one of the producers is good at mixing it up. So don't think for a second that you're you're about to listen or hear the same scenario. So here we go. As you round a corner... Okay, you run straight into one of these bad guys, and now he's pointing a gun at your chest. Okay, so do you A, kick him in the nuts, or B, you want to basically trap, pivot, and strip the gun from him?
6: Well, I don't have the skill to trap and pivot the gun. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, for me, all, all I'm thinking right now is I just want that away from. From my chest, right as best as I can possibly get it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, I know that's not one of the options.
1: It kind of is. It kind of because you're trapped. If you're if you're going to grab the gun in any way, that's yeah. really trapping the gun. Yeah.
6: Right. I, yeah. I just want to get him. Like like if I can get that weapon away. We- like I can't take a chest a shot to the chest, but I can. You know, it's not going to kill me if it hits me in the arm. Right. As we've seen from things that are going on right now in the media. So yeah. I just want to. You know, as long as I can get that gun away from my center mass or from my head or anything like that, that's what I do. I say, when you kick him because you know they might pull the trigger if I kick him in the nuts. I might go like that, you know. That's right. That's so, right. Um,
1: yeah, I think you process of elimination. You know, B is right, and you pivot and trap. You know, trapping the gun just means okay, I just got to get my hands on it. Uh, number two, the pivot is what gets your body out of the way. So it's not pointed at you any longer. You can also drive it to the sky or drive it to the ground. Um, you know, in these situations, there's no right or wrong. It's just come out alive is the goal. As you round the corner, one of the assailants is pointing a gun at your chest. Okay. Do you A, kick him in the nuts, or B, basically trap the weapon. Okay. Pivot, trap,
7: and grab it. We're, we're obviously within arm's reach. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. never, never be in front of the little
1: hole. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, B, you're going to kind of pivot your body out of the way of the barrel and trap the weapon with your hands the best you can. With the gun trapped, a struggle ensues. So do you, A, yank forward to strip the gun away, or B, control it and drive the barrel towards the enemy's chest? Uh, can I...
7: Uh, back up for one second sure the last second when 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 Clint said get your body out of the way and move the and then trap the gun yes just want to just want to say to everybody move your hands first as you're doing that yeah because your your body will never move but your hands will so when you do that hands and body because hands simultaneous are- yeah. Yeah. And, and, and but but if you stepped and then moved your hands, the guy will track with you if he means to shoot you. And but B is the second answer. You want to drive in. You want to control that weapon and knock this
1: fucker off balance. That's right. Control and drive towards their chest or what also works is straight up. Like just getting that gun offline and away from you is the ultimate goal. Uh, but maintaining control of the weapon is also your primary primary goal as well and once you've got it don't let it go with any of these active shooter situations you know the situation itself dictates what's the right or wrong
3: mm-hmm.
1: um you know but ultimately you've got to know where the shooter is because as you know and i've discussed this before gunshots fired indoors is super loud and it's omnidirectional, so you, yeah. you have a hard time knowing exactly where the shots are actually coming from um, sometimes Absolutely. they sound like they're coming from the right, but really they're coming for the left. But, uh, yeah. And if so, you look
8: at active shooter scenarios in schools and malls and stuff, a lot of times the groups of people were running right towards the dude. Exactly. They, didn't, they heard gunshots and it re- reflected off the wall, and they ran right into the actual shooter. So, yeah. very good point for sure.
1: Yeah, so freezing up is never, never a good idea in a survival situation. Stay low to the ground and uh, finding cover gives you – Better chance of survival than freezing up and being an easy target. So, uh, you stay low and you you get moving. So next, do you a get behind a large rack of food in order to hide uh, from the shooter, or b stay low, zigzag over to one of those free-standing meat coolers?
8: I'll go with the the meat coolers. <laughs> I probably have yeah. a little bit more, you know, uh, cover there. And right. um, a better, you know, I would, I would, I would try to position myself to be in a in a, a dominant position over the shooter, and, and wherever he's positioned, I do. You don't want to get up behind um, a soft cover in a scenario like that because right. bullets go through bread quick.
1: Cover versus concealment, right? So, bread, potato chips, any rack of food is not going to stop bullets, though it will hide you from the bad guy. Now, cover, True. cover. Cover is anything that stops bullets. So for those of you listening, you know, you always want to choose cover over concealment because cover will still hide you, but it stops bullets. Like, you know, a freezer full of frozen meat will certainly stop some bullets, um, but the, uh, the bread shelf will not. So cover versus concealment. Um, always yeah. look for Just cover. Just like
8: your card, like a card or tube. people forget you can yeah, shoot right hollow. through a car door <laughs> yeah. man easy so yeah behind I, that engine block get behind yeah. uh, the wheel well you'll know, get behind something that's hardened um because people have a misconception of what bolts can do they clean a millimeter will clean to go through a, a door of the car Sure will. so yeah that's something you got to think about when you're when you're in that scenario for sure
1: suddenly a molotov cocktail comes flying in through your open window all right and the mob wants to burn the building down do you A, run out of the building and sprint straight for the Honda? Or B, do you zigzag your run, keeping your head low, as you try to escape? B. B. This is correct. And zigzag. So it's important to note, um, when you zigzag or run sporadically, it forces uh, shooters and bad guys to change their uh, elevation and windage, especially with uh, rifles, pistols, whatever, anything with sights or optics, um, which makes you a harder target to hit. And that's the goal. Be a hard target. So with all the active shooting, mass shootings going on, you know, and you've got to run a long stretch of terrain, and you don't have any cover to run to, and you find yourself in the open, run sporadically, run like an idiot, moving all over the place, it makes it, makes it a lot more difficult for the uh, shooter to get accurate bullets in your back. You know, with all the reading I've done and actually talking and interviewing lots of people, there is this, uh, like, you know, the bear encounter experience, it has been vastly different for a lot of different people. But the baseline that you hear all the time with black bears is to, get loud get big because they are the least aggressive mm-hmm. and you can actually scare them off like like they're like a big rat basically yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you are right get loud get big um in brown bear like you said are far more aggressive so they say um, but some of the techniques for both have worked with both mm. and then it's important to say that it's really the situation the environment in in, in whether you are injured or not And what's around you determines really what you're going to do. Give the other uh, variation with black bears.
9: So black bears are often, as long as they're not like emaciated or injured, are much more afraid of us than we are of them. Yeah. Two is they're, if we're 70 feet away, their eyesight isn't that great, but their sense of smell and their sense of hearing is pretty good. So chances are they heard me rather than see me. And so I don't want to, I don't want to, target identify myself unless I absolutely have to likelihood is that bear is going to look over to see if I'm a threat and then it's going to look down and as soon as it looks away I'm going to start start retreating some more but to your point if that bear noticed me and started coming towards me then I would go option a and make myself as big and as prominent and as fearsome as I could
1: yeah yeah, I agree 100%. Um yeah, they they they're like dogs. They can smell three-dimensionally and with mm-hmm. that good hearing, they know exactly where you are. Oh, um, 100%. Yeah, you can be behind a tree and they're still going to know but you're behind a, yeah, a tree. But there's a yeah, but there's <laughs> a big difference between
9: a bear like, you know, feeding just going yeah. yeah. Huh? Right. And and like making an, an overt turn towards you. Without a
1: doubt. And I would say, too, the situation, if you've got your family with you versus you're by yourself or with a mama bear with her cubs or by herself, also play a big role in the decision-making yeah, huge, process. Huge. You're home alone, okay? And uh, you're in bed and suddenly everything starts to shake violently. All right? And I don't know if you're familiar with... Uh, What California is due. It's actually overdue for a huge earthquake. So anyway, you feel everything start to shake. Okay. Do you A, get up and rush out of the home or B, stay in the house? Now, there's a lot of protocols that come with earthquakes that you may or may not know about, but uh, you're going to A, get up and run outside or you B, going to stay inside
3: depends how violent the shake is um (laughs) i would say that i the first initial shake i'd probably stay put um so you you know i'd stay put assess it and then then go from there
1: there you go look at you so yes you want to stay in the house um there's a lot of common misconceptions when dealing with earthquakes and the protocol that come with it but rushing outside especially at night you know you don't know what you're running into and the structure you're inside of is going to protect you more than probably uh, whatever's falling outside. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to put yourself at risk, especially at night. Um, so, good job. Yes. B, stay in the house. All right. Next, do you A, lay down next to a sturdy piece of furniture, uh, like a big couch or a table, or B, go stand in a door frame?
3: It's a tough one. I would one. say um, I would say A because if any, anything was to fall, then that sturdy bit of furniture would hopefully protect you yeah. from any.
1: Good job, yes A. Another misconception because you'll hear about it here in the states is go stand in a door frame, but unfortunately, door, door frames are not like reinforced; they're just a door frame, and uh, there's nothing that's really going to protect you. But a couch laying like you know horizontally up against it uh, will hopefully break the fall of other debris because the number one killer in an earthquake is falling debris. Uh, so you want to basically take cover, uh, if you will. Um, so the shark is getting closer. So do you a donkey Kong style, hammer fist, the shark in the fin, (laughs) or B just do a hard or as hard as you can throw a punch in the water to its nose. This is turning into a pretty bad day. Um. <laughs> yeah, it started out okay. I mean, the- uh, definitely the nose. Yeah, they say that nose is super sensitive, right? It's like the housing for radar, and it's not really a nose, it's like just the front, that front yeah. area. Just like humans, you know. Anytime you mess with anybody's ability to breathe, it tends to make them to not want to be an aggressor any longer, right? So if you start to choke someone out, they panic and just don't want to be part of the situation any longer. With a shark, they have gills. They're a fish. And so if, you can, if it gets, it's getting close enough or it's even got a hold of you, getting your hands inside those gills and trying to rip them mm-hmm. um, certainly can uh, work to your advantage as well.
10: If you put the U.S. Embassy in the equation, I'm going to say move to the embassy the embassy is your safe haven that is where you can that is where you can finally take a breath and relax and actually once you get inside safe haven i mean you you know you've got everything at your disposal at that point you know as an american citizen what I, i think a lot of people don't realize they don't value is when they travel um not knowing where your embassies are not knowing how to get to even a consulate not knowing where the consulates are not knowing how to get there uh you know in dire straits so even though I would like to fly, Australia is a big ass continent, and that little <laughs> Cessna isn't going to get me very far, you know. So yeah. I'm going to just keep I'm going to keep the goodwill rolling with this Honda. Keep that goodwill rolling and get right yeah. to the embassy as quick as I can. If those are the two options, I uh... God, see I'm going to die, dude. I'm I'm going to wrestle the gun away. I'm not <laughs> getting the fucking gun.
1: <laughs> well, that'd be very Texas of you for sure. Yeah. Um... But you know, when you're outgunned, outnumbered, or taking severe blows of the head, sometimes you have to temporarily surrender to take control of the situation I, so you I can think escape. That, I
10: think that I would get, I would get in the car. I mean, I'm putting there myself in that perspective. I would get in the car because, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's, you know, otherwise I'm getting shot. But yeah, that, that's the you, you talk tough, but I'd get in the car.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's can you take control of a person with a gun, even though you don't have anything? Yes, and. I think a lot of people are underestimate their capabilities, and they see a person with a gun and immediately go, "He's got the advantage," or "She's got the advantage." I can't do anything. I might as well just sit here. I might as well do nothing. Um, I agree. You could fight, yeah, but you take a chance of you know taking a round in the gut, or or in the head, or or in the chest. And um, but or if you know what you're doing, you really think it through. You can take advantage of these guys, give in temporarily. And uh, So that you can set yourself up for a clean escape later. So, um, But once again, if you're outgunned, which you are, outnumbered or taking severe blows to the head, uh, that temporary surrender is always a good option. Um, and the reason I say that, especially severe blows to the head, the last thing you want to do is get knocked out and then wake up chained mm-hmm. to a wall in a place you have no idea where you're at. Older model cars, you used to be able to kick out like the the entire brake light, and then you could stick your arm out and actually wave, right? Hmm. And people could see an arm hanging out. Now these days, with these newer cars, it's pretty much closed up. The frame is right there, but you can pull the wiring harness, you know, and totally kill the brake light so that hopefully um, a cop sees that or someone sees that and reports it. Um, So yeah, you gotta get creative in the trunk for sure. And if any of you out there wanna practice 180s, I mean, there's a couple of tricks to this. Uh, To a reverse 180 is literally you put it in reverse and you're going to look back into the direction in which you wanna go um, and you're gonna give it gas. And then you're gonna run that steering wheel all the way around so that you can flip that hood uh, 180 degrees. Uh, with your ass towards the angry mob. And in the middle of all that, whether it's a stick or whether it's an automatic, you got to shift from reverse into neutral so that it glides and then into drive once your nose is forward. So, reverse 180s, um, they take some practice, but they're actually pretty easy and effective. And you can usually do it, if you do it properly and get good, you can do it in one lane of space, believe it or not. Um, and so the other takeaway with that, if you're going to go practice this in a parking lot near you, make sure all your tires are aired up, uh, approximately five PSI over max. It's important that those tires are hard as a rock and hundred percent fixated to that wheel rim, because if you roll the tire, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you roll the tire over the rim, well, now you got flat tires and you are shit out of luck. But generally speaking, it's important to see the pattern before jumping to conclusions, right? So if you look around and really take in the environment and you see that moss growth on one side of the tree and not the other, then it's telling you something about sunlight, right? And that's really the goal, knowing, you know, rises in the east and sets in the west. And, you know, we know that the southern side of most, uh, whether it's a building or a forest, right, it's gonna get the most sun. You know, and we're still talking about the Northern Hemisphere. Um, And it's those factors is what allows you to generally say that, okay, Moss equals north.
8: Mm -hmm. Right? Okay.
1: Okay. Uh, So now that you've been heading um, north for a while, according to the Moss compass, (laughs) uh, you're getting thirsty. And uh, you happen to come across a stream. All right. So, do you a bend down and drink from the stream, or b dig a hole near the water's edge instead? Where am I? You are, you're, you you basically found a stream. Okay. You're heading north, uh, and you can either drink directly from the water in the stream, or maybe dig a hole I'm at the dig. edge of the stream. I'm gonna dig.
6: I hate to say yeah. it, I broke this. <laughs> every single day in Alaska, but I, 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 felt a little safer way up there. Um, yeah. but I'm going, I'm going dig.
1: I mean, you are at the top of the stream up there. I mean, right. I mean, by the time you're in like Canada or even Colorado, a lot of stuff is peed in the water by the time it gets mm-hmm. to those points.
6: <laughs> <laughs> it is 80% right. you're in at that yeah, point. Yeah, <laughs> So I think when
1: you're in The Arctic, it's safe to say that, you know, it's probably pretty safe water to drink. Now you're enjoying your coffee uh, before you leave when you notice um, a real dodgy looking fellow looking at you and uh, and looking at other patrons on the patio. Right. So he's kind of scoping some things out. Uh, This guy does not look like he belongs there. Um, He's not ordering anything to drink. He's just kind of hanging out looking sketchy. So do you a avoid looking at him, drink your coffee and look at your phone <laughs> as to not look at the guy and draw any attention to yourself. Right. Or B keep your eyes on him, uh, without making it too obvious.
10: Yeah. I'd definitely be watching him.
1: Yeah. Keep your eyes on him.
10: Eye
1: contact. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> We just we actually just had like Spencer Corson, who, uh, you know, he's a safety kind of security guy who also works in crisis management. And he had a client um, who was in this exact scenario uh, where she just kind of ignored the problem. And guess what? The problem became her problem because he thought, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take advantage of the one who's not paying attention to me.
10: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So sometimes... they like to
10: they like to prey on the the people who seem weak or vulnerable and not paying attention so I mean I've even had times when people will like if you if you run past me once or like whatever like I'll notice you if you run past me twice I think like okay maybe they forgot something or maybe like whatever if you run past me a third time I'm literally watching you until I don't see you again so they know that I I, I know exactly who you are and what you look like
1: right no i think that's good and in the world of surveillance which is where i played for a while um you know you had rules that you never drive past the target more than once right when you're doing a ctr which is a close target reconnaissance and um and and it's for that reason because twice it's kind of like a magic trick once is knowledge or once is a once is magic twice is knowledge right and Mm -hmm. so you want to keep everything you do kind of like a magic trick you only want to really do it once um, but on the receiving end, you definitely should be looking for those multiple passes in uh, any of those other signs and symptoms um, that someone's uh, targeting you. We will be right back after the break. You start to open the driver's door to get into your vehicle. And one of the guys pushes the driver's door shut and says, empty your pockets. <laughs> so do you a draw your weapon or B try to reason with them and ask them that hey I don't I don't want any trouble
7: uh the first off I would try and create space at this point uh I'm probably not going to deploy a a pistol at this point cuz I would rather give them money than shoot them uh and you haven't said whether or not they've they've produced any weapons yet uh so I'm I'm assuming that they haven't they're just they're asking for money uh so I'm going to try and comply with them, right? I'm going to, you know, continue to engage verbally, but I'm definitely not going to get in the car at this point because you get crushed getting in the car right there. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to be circling to try and make sure that I'm lining up both of their guys, right? You can't get flanked, so you, you have it, it becomes a movement game at this point to make sure that you are, uh, that you're tracking on both of the threats at the same time.
1: Yeah. You answered beyond the answers, which, of course, I wouldn't expect any less from you. Um, but I did we, I did put you as drawing your weapon because you're an aggressive kind of guy. Okay. So, hey. A, <laughs> you draw a weapon. <laughs> but it, just like many of these, there's two right answers sometimes. You know, and it's really situation dictates just like in real life, correct? It's really dependent on what's going on. You're already outnumbered. You could, you could literally pull a weapon and probably get away with saying, hey, I was outnumbered, I felt threatened, and so I pulled a knife or I pulled something to try and intimidate them back and create space or whatever. Um, which leads to a little sidebar conversation. I'm curious your thoughts on this. And uh, I went through this with John Lovell, Warrior Poet Society, right? And, you know, we are, as military trained, that if you pull your weapon, you better be pulling the trigger kind of mentality. Um, but do you think there's a place to draw a weapon in order to prevent anything from going any further
7: absolutely uh yeah Yeah. i mean i i tell guys that i used to say don't pull your pistol out unless you're going to use it Mm -hmm. and that was a very immature less experience military that that, that said that because cops pull their pistols out all the time and and shoot people very rarely shoot you know Pulling out your pistol can have a very de-escalating effect. Right. Right. Yes. So what now what I tell guys is it's never posturing. It's never, I just want to win an argument. Uh, so I'm going to pull my pistol out. It is, okay, I, you know, my, whatever, 44 years of experience tell me that this is going to escalate. Therefore, yeah. I am go- like, I'm ready to shoot this guy if he takes two more steps forward. Therefore, if I can pull my pistol out now and say, no, buddy, let's just go ahead and stop right there. You know, if if I can do that and he leaves, man, that's a much higher level win. It's always a higher level win to win with a lower level of violence. Yes. Right. Because I get to go home. He gets to go home. I'm not even if it's a righteous shoot. That's still like I'm getting arrested that day. Oh, you know, there's still I'm losing my pistol. Like there's there's going to be all sorts of anxiety because. Yeah, you know, they're gonna read you the Riot Act, they're probably still gonna charge you with something initially. Like, man, everyone's life is better if you're like, no. Like yeah. if, if you if you take two more steps forward, or or it might be, you know, that same type of situation, maybe the got guy, one guy's got a pipe, you ID that, you pull a pistol out and you're like, No, man, like this this is not happening go go away go go home to mama right now like go go chill out at home like i'm gonna leave right now uh but in your mind you're like if he comes around if he breaks 12 o'clock on my truck i'm gonna burn him down because i can't because past that it's he's too fast for for me to be able to to engage him um and that, that is a significantly higher level win.
1: and i also think too you know you mentioned the word basic 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 a lot and i think people forget that Really, our job with any skill out there is, uh, you, you master the basics, then you will become advanced. It's not about showing up and learning some Jedi stuff. There are there is no Jedi stuff. It doesn't no. exist. It's so mastering the basics is what makes you a Jedi,
10: right? Man, I love that. That is perfect. That is that is exactly the key. Like I tell, like I told people this for years. If you you know the secret to winning is simple: master the fundamentals, and then execute them faster than the bad guy. Yeah, That's it. That's all, right. all
9: it takes. We were supposed to stay at this like government building, but there was this like transition going on. So they wound up taking us to the new presidential palace, which was still being built. And it was one of those things where you walk in and they have all the president's photos lined up, but all of them are like 18 months in duration because they keep getting assassinated. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't really great for instilling confidence. And they're still like painting the house. They're still like screwing in the light bulbs. And then I see these like two, two or three, like military convoys coming in. All these guys with like AK-40 says, like this is my protection detail. That's going to help me with the, with the, uh, the delegation that's coming in. Plane lands the next day. I've got three, I've got a, a pack of three. I've got the head of the organization his, his number one and a deputy. None of them are American. The only other two Americans are the pilots. But the airport, the private airfield, was attached to the presidential palace. So we've got this whole like three trucks of protection people. were there for three days. First day, everything goes fine. Second day, I start to see the protection detail is like half of what it was. By the third day, it's 15 guys down from like 150. And I'm like, what's going on?" we uh, have a couple meetings scheduled for that day. And I get a, a ping from my guy at the embassy who's like, Hey, when are you scheduled to leave? And I'm like, later this afternoon, he's like, no, leave now. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, how much time do I have? And he just took, he just texted me back RFN, like right fucking now. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, shit. So I get the pilots to the plane, have them start ramping things up, get the, the number two to let the boss know that we've got to go I just start filling a bathtub up with water to just destroy all the documents. I'm taking a nail and a hammer and just driving it through hard drives, throwing everything into the tub. Realize that there's an SUV in the garage that can get us to the plane. Fortunately, the keys were still in there and the driver was asleep. He would wake up in a storage closet a couple hours later, get everyone on the plane, or sorry, get everyone onto the SUV. We get to the plane, load it. And as we're ramping up, you see the military convoy coming through the gate and wow. the same, and the same general that was like telling me how great his protection team <laughs> yeah. was, was the one that was leading the coup. And I was <laughs> like, Hey man, drinks it's on you next go. time, yeah. next time we're there. I was like, Phew. because the only Americans on that trip were the two pilots and me. Yeah. And I certainly did not want us to be uh, bargaining chips in some new president's ascension to legitimacy. And we got ambushed by one uh, SKS, you know, wielding gunman from, he was in a fortified position.
6: We were a tactical disadvantage with the early morning light going slightly uphill. They had a parapet dug where they were burying trash, but they had a really good overwatch position. They got one shot off. It went through both legs of my warden partner who had trained in the academy about six months before that great young man. So he's bleeding out of four holes and now we're in a gunfight where I'm engaging the guy that's coming around the corner that shot him and is trying to finish the job while another sheriff's deputy is engaging a suspect that's got a sawed-off shotgun on me and another warden that's seven yards away through a canopy of brush and marijuana that we can't even see this bad guy. And before he's about to take a shot and take my head off, Snake, i.e. Deputy Craig Diver, took that guy out. And I wouldn't be talking to you, brother, if he didn't make that move. So in that day, so we're working with three Really dialed in sheriff's deputies, all military veterans, all on their SWAT and sniper teams. We had a little bit of that going on internally with us, and we had not really trained together adequately. We weren't compatible on radios yet. We didn't have all the stuff we needed, um, the trauma gear that you guys were getting really dialed in in those mid-2000s over in the sandbox. But after that gunfight, shit changed Quit. Mm-hmm. And essentially my partner survived that, but we kept him from bleeding out and he just held on by sheer will for three hours waiting for an air rescue. Was it
0: what was the probably the craziest thing you did? Well, it would definitely be after September eleventh doing those shipboarding operations like I don't have to think too hard about that my mind we immediately went to bars and things like that you know, as <laughs> <I laughs> a new guy in platoon but uh, uh my second platoon was September 11th and we were about two weeks into that second deployment and uh we thought we were going to go right into Afghanistan but instead we loaded up the plane in Guam we flew in and ended up taking over the shipboarding operations for SEAL Team 3, and those guys ended up going into, into Afghanistan. But it was the only time during those 20 years that I got to do an actual real-world shipboarding operation, uh, multiple. And uh, what we would do is those ships would come out of Iraq, and because of the UN oil embargo, then they take a hard left-hand turn for Iranian waters. And if memory serves, you had about 20 minutes or so, depending on sea state and all the rest of it, to get on those things take them over, turn them around back in international waters, and then turn them over to a prize crew, which are people that actually know how to drive big ships, which are like class three tankers loaded up with this oil. Um, So it was interesting to do that because they put these passive countermeasures in place. Uh, And for people listening, a passive countermeasure would be something that is not – directly like shooting at you. So they take barbed wire, string it up all over the deck. So if you tried to throw a fast rope out, it would get fouled so you couldn't fast rope onto the deck. That meant you had to come in from the ocean, which meant that in these crazy sea states, it's a lot harder because they would always wait until it was be, they knew it was going to be very difficult for you in a small craft to come up alongside and board. And then if you did do that, then they cut the ladders off on all the on all these different levels so instead of being able to scamper up even once you're on board these things scamper up to the next level you couldn't do that because they were cut off and then all the windows and doors were welded shut as well so you have to get in there with an exothermic torch with the saw usually a combination of both and uh, and get in there to take these things over so you're on the clock to do this, yeah. you get waters. Yeah. You got to get off that thing ASAP. And uh, so that was pretty interesting. So as an enlisted guy, that was my first uh, like real world. Type operation, so I would say that was probably the the craziest thing I did as an enlisted guy because it's like a, I would equate it to being a police officer pulling somebody over in the middle of the night on the freeway or deserted highway, whatever, and you're walking up to it and you're not exactly sure who's in there, how many people are in there, um, yeah. what their you know mindset is. You just you're walking up on an unknown. So same thing here. Middle of the night, uh, rough sea state. You're getting on board, and you're not exactly sure what you're going to find. So, um, so that was probably the craziest thing I did as a enlisted guy. I've listened to uh, you know
10: your show, and I and I think I think actually your audience would really appreciate learning just a tiny bit about what it was like being a seal. <laughs> Come on, give us, uh, some, give us a couple. No, of it answers.
1: was like yeah, okay. My my experience was. Uh, was pretty unique it was cool i got to you know and i went through buds class 203 which uh you know was in 96 ish and then went to seal team three and got to spend time at the nsa and then finish my career on the east coast at uh development group you know and uh anyway it was uh i got lucky i got to do the combat thing but i also got to do more of the clandestine covert side of the house pretty much an even split um and it's the last part of my career most people are interested in. Unfortunately, you know, I can't really get into the details of it, but... all
4: classified. I,
1: well, I, I, you know, what's funny is when I when I built the right kind of crazy, um, and I, I too used a little bit of the American Psycho kind of stuff to build the right kind of crazy. <laughs> um, because I feel like that's what you need in order to, you know, kind of go into special operations anyway. But... Um, they The beauty of it is the government redacted a hundred pages, and that's a lot when you when you write a book. I mean, we had to basically do a complete rewrite uh once we got the manuscript back from the Pentagon, and they sat on them on that manuscript for a year and then uh, when we finally got it back, you know we were able to still turn it into something is this um, is
10: this a hundred deadly skills?
1: No, no, that's the, that book. those books actually did really well. The right kind of crazy, which uh, I'm is I'm going to go deadly
10: skills.
6: Yeah, 100 deadly skills. i can
10: put them in my next movie in my in my uh in my uh next next, next Captain Black sequel. <laughs>
1: Dude, that would be awesome. I, actually I'll just send you some if you want them, but uh <laughs> the um yeah. Anyway, the book is great because it kind of tells you all this stuff, but then you see the redacted. I left all the redacted crap in there so that people could then kind of piecemeal, you know, what I did later, kind of together. But yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. So there you go, listeners, uh, at the request of. Uh, Lewis Linton. We, uh, we got it. We got some, uh, Clint stuff in there. <laughs>
10: I love it. It's fascinating.
0: <laughs> and
1: as you know, I'm one of the idiots that likes to thread the needle and drive like an asshole in between cars. Um, and I think that one of the most memorable moments with you, we had a, a government issued van, right? And we are in, in Hawaii and I was kind of the designated driver for all the assholes. so It was like a 16-passenger government-issued white van, and we get on Highway 1 in Hawaii, and I drive that thing like it's a Formula 1 car, and by the time we get done, which was very normal for me. It's just how I drove, and you, we get out of the van. I forgot where we were or what we were doing. You probably remember because your memory is like, Fucking thousand times better than mine, but I just remember you coming up to me and showing me your hand, and it had beads of sweat in it. And you're like, "This is what your driving does to me." <laughs> in a van. In a van, yeah. yeah. Did you say A-team? A-team,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Every episode they had to build something at the end. Yeah. And it's kind of yeah, like uh, a little, like little bit totally of MacGyver, but it was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, let's uh let's do a little tribute here. One of my uh, alarm features. Is definitely um something
0: I can do the whole thing from memory. <laughs> 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 yeah. Today,
9: still wanted
4: by the they
9: yeah. wanted you have a problem, if no one else can help,
5: Still
1: gives me goosebumps.
5: I tell you, I have the utmost respect for our military, uh, all branches and all the decisions that they have to make out in the field to save their own lives, their their platoon, their comrades and everybody that's with them. And also the, the decisions to protect our freedoms. Uh, it's it's huge, man. And I'm lucky I get a roll cage and a helmet and I get to go 200 miles an hour and it doesn't <laughs> hold a candle to what our military do. So thank you. No,
1: thank thank you, man. Thanks for your goodwill and and uh, supporting the troops the way you do. I know it's all appreciated. I was one of those guys that kind of brushed it off, like, you know, yeah, all right, support us, great. Support us, don't, because the job is really, you know, at the forefront, and I had front sight focus at the time. But now that I've been out, guys like you, um, making it happen um, for for all the veterans, it, it, I think it, it makes a world of difference. So uh, keep up the good deeds. And we, uh, we sure appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your racing knowledge, your, uh, your fiery, crazy situations, and, uh, of course, going through this scenario with us. We do appreciate it. And thank you.
5: No, no, it's my pleasure. No, it was a blast, you know, to jump in with you and to go through this process. That was great. And again, uh, there's so much to, to learn about NASCAR. And this helps people see it from a different direction. So I'm happy to to be a brand ambassador for not just Monster Energy, but for NASCAR.
1: Yeah, you are. You're a great. You're a, a great symbol of the community. And like I always say, folks, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time, be safe out there. And for those of you listening, hey, uh, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And be safe out there until next time. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.